0: I'm going to talk about the broader ramifications of ARCUS. And it's a great topic for a conference because it touches on so many different uh, issues. So, as you know, on September 15, there was an earthquake in the Pacific. And its aftershocks are still reverberating around the world. You may have seen uh, on television, uh, President Biden flanked with the Australian and uh, British Prime Ministers announcing the formation of a trilateral security partnership with Australia and the UK, including the provision of nuclear-powered submarines. Simultaneously, France was informed that uh, Canberra would break a contract signed in 2016 for the provision of 12 diesel-electric submarines. Now, this was a, I can tell you, this was a real, real shock in Paris. But Australia had strong arguments for this sudden change of heart. Canberra argued that three evolutions had taken place since we had signed the contract with them. China had changed, it had become more aggressive and had expanded its maritime presence in the region. Uh, The United States had changed. No previous US administration had been willing to export nuclear reactors technology to a non-nuclear country. And finally, Australia itself had changed Domestic opposition in principle to nuclear technology um, and to all things in nuclear, in particular in the Labour Party, had become less severe. So, the reaction in Paris? Well, we now know that strategic surprises can also come from the West. Uh, The shock to the French was so severe for four reasons. The first reason because obviously it was the breach of a major contract the contract of the century, as we used to call it. Uh, but it was not a contract only to the French industry because it involved the Australian industry and the American industry. This is something which is not always well known, but the US industry was a big part of this endeavor because Lockheed Martin was to be the uh, lead combat system integrator in the in the program. Um, note also that whatever difficulties the program was running into, the contract was broken for convenience and not for fault. In other words, um, the uh, Australian government acknowledged that no fault had taken place in the execution of the contract. The second reason, and maybe the most important one, is that it was seen as a breach of trust among allies and friends. On the substance, I failed to see any equivalent or precedent. And regarding the method, no advance notice was given. Um, To put it into perspective, we started hearing the rumors in the afternoon and the announcement took place during uh, during the night. Uh, Third, I would qualify this, and that's a personal assessment, as a breach of hopes. The Arcus deal signaled to the French that they would never belong to that exclusive club of Anglophone gentlemen, well gentlemen because it's only men in power in the three countries. But it sounds also like a British club and that's exactly how I'd like to make it sound. This is embodied in the so-called Five Eyes, the five countries, adding Canada and New Zealand, which have been sharing and cooperating on intelligence for decades now. So this club, we now know for sure that we we will never be part of that very exclusive Anglophone uh, old boys uh, club. And finally, it was a breach of strategy for us because uh, we've been very active in the Indo-Pacific for several years now. But we had devised, built our strategy on two legs or two pillars. One was Indian, the other was Australian. If one leg falls, obviously, uh, the strategy has to be completely revamped. So I will start with the consequences for US-European relations, because they are likely to be, and they have been, the most immediate. Um, Caveat first, especially when one speaks in all rights for Norway, the French often seem to conflate Europe with the EU. Uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, uh, Arcus is a transpacific and transatlantic deal because of the involvement of um, the UK. But there are three dimensions I'd like to mention. The first is the American-French ones. Uh, September 15 fueled a well-known French narrative according to which not only the United States has never been a fully trustworthy protector, not because of its nature, but because of its distance, but in addition to that, it has been moving away, according to this narrative, further, further uh, away from Europe and with increasing speed over the past 10 years by supporting Paris only half-heartedly uh, in Libya and in the Sahel, by leaving the French hanging dry in August 2013, as we were both washington and paris about to punish damascus for the use of chemical weapons against civilians by exiting from syria without consulting allies by leaving afghanistan without coordinating on the modalities with nato allies then came september 15 um, i hesitate in using the expression a day that will live in infamy because obviously this was not a military attack, but the, uh, p- it was kind of Pearl Harbor-like for us. It felt a little bit like that without, obviously, without the death. But the sense of betrayal was at least akin to that which was felt by our American friends when we decided in early 2003 to actively oppose the the Iraq war, however, there was a difference because when we act as a European power in the Indo-Pacific, we seek to act alongside the United States, not against the United States. We've joined the US Navy in patrolling the South China Sea. We've exercised with our American, Japanese, and Indian friends, and Australian friends uh, in the Indo-Pacific. We have sought to convince our European friends and allies to get interested in the region. But we, as French, we never sought to, or could ever replace the United States as the ultimate guarantor of a country like Australia. This was never in the cards. So we thought we never acted as a competitor, as a strategic competitor to the United States in the Indo-Pacific, of course we are competitors on arms industries and markets but that's the way it is so for us the comparison was perhaps like the suez crisis of 1956 which was one of the first significant shocks to the french american uh, relation post 1945 the second dim- dimension is the uh, the eu us one by coincidence uh, the first ever EU strategy for the Indo-Pacific was published on the day of the Arcus announcement. Um, this strategy is based on a network of partnerships, um, notably with India, Korea, and Japan, as well as Southeast Asia through the uh, Asia-Europe meetings that have taken place since 1996. 19f- the EU strategy recognizes major European interests there, given ever increasing transcontinental interdependence in economics and security, as well as the recognition of the need to protect global commons and uphold international legal norms, first and foremost, of course, the freedom of uh, navigation. Also by coincidence, France will hold the presidency of the EU from January to June 2022 and Paris will obviously seek to implement or operationalize the EU strategy for the Indo-Pacific. Now given the strong reactions to the Arcus deal in Brussels and to some extent in Berlin, uh, one should expect questions being raised during the French presidency about how much we we should be more independent from Washington when protecting our own European interests in the region, and I think that, more generally, the French, unsurprisingly, will double down on their rhetoric for the need f- to, for the need for more strategic autonomy. Now, of course, as a colleague reminded me a few weeks ago, the French have a tendency to, you know, any anytime something happens, the French have a tendency to say that's the proof we need more strategic autonomy. The sun would rise, and as he put it, and the f- French would say that's why we need more strategic autonomy. So that's a very fair uh, point. But I'd like to just to testify to the fact that the French genuinely, it's an honest, genuine, sincere feeling, believe that over the past decade, uh, their narrative has been vindicated by events. Are they right? I'm happy to discuss that. I just want to testify to the fact that it's a genuine, uh, it's a genuine feeling. So this leads me to the third dimension, the NATO dimension, uh, and the ongoing discussions about how much the Atlantic Alliance should take into account China's rise. Uh, Arcus is obviously another sign of the US tilt towards Asia and of its willingness to contain uh, Beijing's maritime ambitions. But I think that two questions are now put to Washington by France, and also behind the scene by a few other European countries. First, how can you, Washington, convince us, Europeans, that your increased involvement in the Indo-Pacific does not mean less interest for Europe? Second, how can you, Washington, convince us, Europeans, that we need to coordinate the strategies for dealing with China when you Uh, appear ready to surprise us as you did on September 15. French authorities, I must say, have a point when they note that the September surprise, as I call it, indicates, quote, a lack of coherence, unquote, in the US approach. Now for the consequences for Asia. I'm trying to follow very closely the template uh, that's very asked me to follow. So what about the consequences of ARCUS for Asia? The first thing to consider is that ARCUS is much more than about nuclear submarines. It is once again an enhanced trilateral security partnership based on the foundation of existing alliances, US, UK, US, Australia. It's actual focus Is more technology sharing and cooperation than the provision of nuclear submarines. Namely, deeper, and I'm quoting the uh, announcement deeper information and technology sharing, deeper integration of security and defense related science, technology, industrial bases, and supply chains. Initial efforts, initial efforts will focus on, quote, cyber capabilities, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and additional undersea capabilities. To this should be added increased access for U.S. forces in Australia. So to sum up, I'm tempted to say that uh, the tree should not hide the forest. The tree is the deal for nuclear-powered submarine. The forest, I think is a much broader and deeper security and technology partnership. And this may actually be the most important dimension of Arcus. Containing the rise of China is obviously the implicit goal. I'm saying implicit because China is not mentioned in the September 15 trilateral communique. But this is obviously about... Uh, denying the people Liberation Army's Navy the ability to control international waters, the ability to encroach on the national sovereignty of friends and allies, and the ability to threaten their territories. And for that, clearly, nuclear-powered submarines are an important asset. And submarines are proliferating throughout the world, in particular, but not only throughout the Indo-Pacific region. (coughs) Nuclear-powered submarines provide sea control and sea denial abilities, intelligence collection abilities, and power projection ability, especially as they will be increasingly armed with long-range missiles to enhance their reach. China, according to some projections, should have no less than 76, 76 submarines by 2030. That's a total, that's not only nuclear power, against 66 for the United States, including among these 66, including, of course, those earmarked for other regions. Then again, the Indo-Pacific is a big place. It represents roughly half of the Earth's surface, one need to travel far and fast to control the region and stay on station for long periods to be an efficient maritime actor in the Indo-Pacific. And in this respect, nuclear-powered submarines are a real asset, they don't need to surface, and they can undertake longer patrols. One not so well-known reason, not so well known reason is that, uh, in fact, they have to be big. A nuclear reactor takes a lot of space. So because they have to be big, they can take, uh, they can carry more food, and food is actually one of the uh, key factors uh, for the duration of a patrol, because guess what, people have to eat. (laughs) Note, however, that the advantages of nuclear powered submarines against modern diesel electric submarines are actually reduced because modern diesel electric submarines are almost completely silent when they run on batteries whereas nuclear powered rea- uh, nuclear-powered submarines still need to be cooled and because they need to be cooled there are pumps and pumps make noise so you have to dampen that noise. So the idea that nuclear powered submarines are silent and diesel-electric submarines are noisy is, not, is no longer true. It's, mu- it's a much more complex competition between the two. I would say that nuclear-powered and non-nuclear-powered submarines complement each other rather well. Now, not everyone in Asia is happy about ARCUS. Most uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries, with some exceptions, like Singapore and the Philippines, have raised concerns about the hardening of the U.S.-China competition. Um, Malaysia and Indonesia in particular have been the most most vocal. And they fear, just like many of us in Europe do, they fear that we may be forced by the United States to choose sides in a U.S.-China competition. They fear, in a sense, that we may go back to the uh, Days of the George W. Bush administration, where, as the motto went, as some of you remember, it was "You are with us or against us." We're not there yet, obviously, and uh, Joe Biden is no George Bush, thank God. However, the concern that we collectively, the U.S. friends and allies, including France, including Norway, may be increasingly um, be uh, asked by our Washington, friends the job side is, is a concern that I see uh, uh, increasingly uh, in European uh, debates. Let me tackle now uh, the consequences for non-proliferation, an issue that uh, Sveria and I have worked a lot over the years. Uh, so what are the consequences for the nuclear non-proliferation regime? As many of you know, US and British nuclear-powered submarines run on highly enriched uranium, which, as is well known, uh, is one of the materials that can be used to make atomic bombs. Now, their French counterparts or equivalent run on low enriched uranium, or have been running on LEU, low enriched uranium, since the 80s. Uh, The reason for using HEU, highly enriched uranium, is that it makes for lifetime cores you don't need to replenish, to refuel the reactor. You can use the same reactor as a black box, so to say, during the entire service life of the submarine. LEU reactors, such as the French ones, or the Chinese one, uh, have to be refueled at least once, if not twice, during their lifetime, roughly once every 10 or 15 years. The U.S. Navy and the U.S. National Nuclear Security Administration claim that transitioning to LEU, transitioning to low-enriched uranium, would be lengthy, would take about 15 years, would be extremely costly, and would also result in degraded performances. Proponents of the move, because there are many American analysts and officials who think that it would be a good thing, for the U.S. to move to LEU. They know that the United States will soon need to resume HEU production for the first time since 1992, which would not be a good sign for non-proliferation and disarmament. And they also claim that new generation LEU reactors could actually have lifetime cores. So this has been the highly enriched Iranian problem for nuclear propulsion has been a question since the inception of the nuclear non-proliferation regime. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, could hardly enter a submarine to check for the contents of the reactor, especially since uh, the setup of the propulsion system, notably the way the turbines are made as silent as possible, are among the most closely guarded secrets uh, of uh, submarine builders. Just to give you an example, uh, the French and the Americans do not allow each other to get into the rear part of the submarine. We visit each other's submarines, of course. But uh, as far as I know, we don't allow our American friends to get into the rear part of the submarine, and they don't allow us to get into the rear part. of the submarine. It's like the Holy of Holies, so to say. So, as a result, there has been, uh, for a long time, a loophole, as they call it, in the safeguards regime. A a nuclear non-proliferation treaty signatory, a non-nuclear NPT signatory, is allowed to, I mean, nuclear or non-nuclear, sorry. Uh, An NPT signatory is allowed to withdraw HEU from its stocks for use in naval propulsion. IAEA Director Rafael Grossi stated on September 29th that, quote, we with Australia, with the United States and the United Kingdom have to enter into a very complex technical negotiation to see to it that as a result of this, this being AUKUS, there is no weakening of the nuclear non-proliferation regime. So a concern being raised already by uh, Rafael Grossi because the promised nuclear submarine deal is a first. So far, no no non-nuclear armed country has ever possessed a nuclear-powered submarine, although Brazil uh, plans to commission one around 2030 brazil a non-nuclear country is actually building nuclear powered submarines. they're not operational yet but the first one should be operational around um, 2030 uh, uh, which means by the way that uh, it will be the first because australia will will not have nuclear powered submarines by 2030 that's for sure uh, in fact i think australia traded uh, sovereignty for capability But as I will say in a few minutes, I'm not not sure it will have either. Um, (laughs) Most importantly, and this is where the taboo has been broken, so to say, uh, no nuclear power has ever transferred nuclear propulsion technology to a non-nuclear power, especially one like Australia, which has no civilian nuclear program. So, in fact, I mean, if you look at this from a theoretical standpoint, there are four possible nuclear ex- uh, exports paths for nuclear propulsion by a nuclear weapon state. The first is to another nuclear weapon state, that is, like the United States to the United Kingdom. The second path is from a nuclear weapon state to a de facto nuclear weapon state such as India this is what happens when the russia leased uh, a nuclear submarine to uh, a nuclear proper powered submarine to uh, to india the third possible path is from a nuclear weapon state to a non-nuclear weapon state with a civilian nuclear industry say for instance japan okay if the us uh, sold or another country sold nuclear uh, Propulsion to uh, to Japan, I mean Japan would have the ability to refuel it itself, and the fourth possible path, the least probable of all, is from a n- nuclear weapon state to a non nuclear weapon state without a civilian nuclear industry such as Australia. now Australia does not have one does not plan to have one so here 's my contention um Despite the fact that HEU, highly enriched uranium, can be used to make nuclear bombs, uh, it actually makes more sense to provide HEU fuel reactors to Australia than to sell them LEU fuel reactors. It's quite a paradoxical. What I'm saying here is that in some respect, I think the US choice and the US transfer to Australia, if and when it happens, may be more less sorry, maybe less a problem for the nuclear non-proliferation regime because an HEU reactor has a lifetime core. So it can be a black box, which is never open by the country which actually uh, operates the nuclear submarines. In other words, Australia will not need to have a major political debate on whether or not it should have a civilian nuclear program with military usage to fuel its reactors and be sovereign on this question. And in fact, let me be a bit provocative about that question of uh, repercussions on the nuclear non-proliferation regime. If you assume that Arcus, a deal such as AUKUS is also a reassurance deal Uh, if it bolsters the relationship between Australia and the United States, well, if a country feels safer overall, then the risks that it would ask itself, do I need nuclear weapons for my own protection? That risk is lessened. So I'm pushing the argument a little bit, but I think that in some respect, uh, the Arcus deal may also have some benefits. Non- nuclear non-proliferation, don't get me wrong, I don't think that Australia will seriously one day be tempted to have its own nuclear weapons. But this is actually a debate that has he- here and there agitated the uh, uh, the milieu in Sydney and Canberra uh, since the uh, 1960s. So it's not a non-existent debate. Uh, but one could say that if you provide uh, means that are seen as reassurance by, to your ally, then their own debate on should we get should we go nuclear uh, may be uh, actually less uh, less important. So, I'm pushing the argument a little bit here, just for the sake of uh, debate. And to be clear, there is no direct or indirect nuclear weapons proliferation risk um, in the uh, Occus deal. Uh, Still, the deal will require the transfer of nuclear know-how for operating the reactor, as well as training for safety and security, unless you assume, of course, that there will be US officers in Australian submarine taking care entirely of the nuclear parts. So this is a small dent in the nuclear non-proliferation regime. It's not a major concern, I think, as far as I'm concerned. However, there will be others, and this is the problem. From now on, No non-nuclear country could be challenged for building nuclear-powered submarine, and no nuclear power could be challenged for selling them to a non-nuclear country. Again, a taboo has been broken, or at least a tradition has been broken by AUKUS. Russia will now feel free to sell HEO reactors. France will now feel free to sell LEU powered submarine technology. Although I expect my country to be ready to do so only to friendly states, quasi allies that already have a nuclear complex such as India or Japan. Now don't get me wrong, I don't think the French are now knocking on the doors in Delhi and Tokyo and say, hey, would you like nuclear submarines? However, I think that it has to be seen the other way around. If a country like India, Japan, South Korea, others, were to ask the French, is it conceivable that uh, if we uh, open a tender, you would bid with nuclear-powered submarines? The French will say yes, because it's no longer a taboo. Our American friends have broken the taboo. Another, maybe more significant problem for the nuclear non-proliferation regime is that other countries will now be able to claim that, oh, they need HEU for real or imagined future submarines. Uh, this is something that those who have followed the Iranian nuclear question for some time have seen coming. Uh, and actually, the day of the arkus uh, submarine uh, announcement, I... I was probably not the only one, but uh, I immediately said publicly, well, you know, in a few days, we'll see Iran say we need HU for our future submarines. And bingo, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. That was, uh, I'm not uh, saying that I I have some uh, 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 particular um, um, uh, uh, witchcraft in terms of uh, guessing the Iranian intention. It was just so obvious they would. So to be sure, this is not about bolstering the Iranian nuclear program per se. I mean, the fact, the AUKUS announcement does not make it more likely that Iran will or will not build nuclear weapons. However, it's important for the narrative. Iran is trying to win the global narrative about the legitimacy of its nuclear program not the narrative with the countries it's negotiating with russia the united states uh, china and the um, eu3 but the global narrative about a country which uh, wants to stand up to the west and by saying oh we can do we should do highly enriched uranium for propulsion too we the arcus announcement, in a sense helped them bolster this um, this narrative so what now? Let me conclude with uh, consequences for Australia and a, a few words about France. So I would submit that it's far from certain that Australia will end up having US or UK designed nuclear powered submarine. As I said, I think Canberra decided to trade sovereignty for capability. A sovereign capability, that's, uh, that's what we were Helping them design, they decided to have a better capability but a less sovereign one. And we in France thought that Australia wanted to be more France like. It turned out that they wanted to be more British like. However, the AUKUS deal also means that it will, they will have to wait for another decade. Um, another decade in addition, I mean, w- uh, the French Australian submarines were supposed to uh, uh, be completed. The first was to be completed in the, uh, in the uh, end of the 2020s. Now, there is no way the Australians can get a nuclear powered submarine before the end of the 2030s. So, they're losing another decade to get the first of their at least eight modern nuclear powered submarines. It's not yet certain that they will be built in Australia. Even less so, there will be service there. Uh, you don't service a nuclear reactor ashore at Pierside uh, uh, easily. Uh, there are constraints of safety, security, there are legal responsibility constraints. So some say now that maybe there will be service in Guam, which is US territory. And in fact, one wonders, will they have them at all? Uh, the deal will have to go through significant political obstacles in Washington u s legislation Congress legislation will have to be modified, perhaps also in Canberra. Elections are scheduled to take place uh, in Australia in the spring, uh, while the potential cost of u s submarines, which are approximately three times more expensive uh, per unit than the French and the French ones, will also be discussed and Australia will have to make a major recruitment effort for, for nuclear train. Officers and technicians, failing what? Of course, once again. Mm, all that can make the choice to have British or American officers on board their own submarines. Again, trading sovereignty for capability. A lease of submarines could also be an option, but I'm not sure that the United States or the United Kingdom have enough submarines uh, for a for lease. I mean, you don't build submarines like sausages right. so perhaps in the end the AUKUS will end up translating into just an increased US and UK submarines in presence in the region who knows we will know at the end of the 18 months uh, period the study period uh, which started in uh, in September uh, some of my American colleagues such as uh, George Berkovich, whom you may know, was both a leading expert on uh, Asia and also a leading expert on nuclear issues, suggests in fact that expectations about uh, the nuclear submarine deal should not be exaggerated, so he agrees with me in a sense. He compares it with the U.S.-India deal, which was announced with great fanfare in, 20, uh, in 2005. Now, 16 years later, not a single U.S. nuclear deal reactor has been built in India. A few words to conclude on uh, what's next for France. So, as I stated, the crisis of confidence with two of our closest allies, the United States and the United Kingdom, is severe and will affect the scope of our cooperation in the coming years. Now, there was a massive effort by the United States last week to uh, try to uh, um, reboot our cooperation. There was Tony Blinken was there and, uh, and uh, Jake Sullivan was there too. And uh, I actually participated in a meeting with uh, Jake Sullivan with other think tankers. We had a 90 minutes real discussion. I think that now our American friends understand why we were so angry, that it was not just a tra- tantrum, or that it was not, not just the French being too emotional, that the sense of betrayal, that the wound is very deep and severe. But we are not yet at the point where we can resume our normal cooperation. And uh, we actually uh, need our American friends to uh, give us more than uh, declarations of love. Now we need proofs of love. Uh, Declarations are good, uh, words are good, deeds are better. So it's not as simply as a shopping list. uh, There is a shopping list, which I'm not supposed to know that. I won't talk about it. But uh, we have actually, I mean, the government has asked them for specific examples of uh, cooperation that we could uh, increase that that could lead us to restore the mutual uh, trust. Um, so, uh, five points for uh, trying, but we're not there yet. Uh, and with Australia and the UK, it's a very different ballgame. I mean, in a sense, we uh, we may be on the way to have a policy which is not totally unlike what uh, what Condoleezza Rice said after the during the Iraq crisis. Uh, you know, punish the French, uh, forgive the Germans. So we are, we may be on the way to forgive the Americans. Uh, We are punishing the Brits, and we are ignoring Australia. (laughs) Uh, I'm not the first one to say it. Others have said it, but it did come naturally, though. Uh, I think as much as I'm fond of Australia and French-Australian cooperation, I actually played a very small role uh, 10 years ago in the um, the uh, rejuvenation of the French-Australian strategic partnership, aside from the nuclear submarine deal. I mean, I was never part of that. It's not my job. But Australia is our neighbor. It's not a neighbor in the Pacific. Um, so it's an important neighbor. Uh, we need them. They need us. Uh, so something will have to be reconstructed at some point but we're not there yet it uh, it, w- it will take time the UK is the is the most important problem because the relationship with London is very bad at present due to the implementation of uh, well post Brexit, the modalities of EU UK relations post brexit due to also a number of issues such as cross-channel migration and due to the very bad personal relationship would exist between the British, current British Prime Minister and the French President. But we're not going to freeze our cooperation. We need each other. France and the UK both recognize that they are the most serious uh, military actors uh, in Europe. Um, I think that it will just be harder now to embark a new project, a new cooperative project with the UK. Uh, for instance the the launch of a new um, joint anti-ship missile has been delayed Um, but it will not affect and it's not affecting the most important aspect of our bilateral cooperation you see what i've seen over the years that when my country and the us or the uk have a severe disagreement just like it happened during uh, the iraq war there are some aspects of bilateral cooperation which are sanctuarized, which we put in a black box. We don't want to attach that, and by mutual agreement, such as uh, you know, intelligence ser- sharing for counterterrorism, for instance, that's something which is not affected. Uh, ongoing combat operations where both of forces uh, fight side to side, that's not affected. Uh, Military nuclear cooperation, that's not affected either. So there are sanctuaries in French British or French American cooperation which are untouched. And I believe, I hope, that they are also untouched at, uh, at present. So the French welcome the reaffirmation by President Biden that European defense is not a threat to NATO. As stated in the joint Biden-Macron communique of September 22nd, 20, the United States, quote, recognizes the importance of a stronger and more capable European defense that contributes pos- positively to transatlantic and global security <coughs> and is complementary to NATO. Now, this is not the first time the US says this, but this the reaffirmation by the president himself at this very moment was a good sign of uh, confidence building or reconciliation building by uh, Washington. However, our own French interests in the Indo-Pacific remain and we will not uh, pivot back to Europe. Uh, we will have to revamp our strategy in the region, possibly enhancing our partnerships with, uh, with India, with Japan, with some Asian countries, Asian countries. Uh, we will be more supportive of inclusive diplomacy uh, than, of, uh, than with uh, provocative behavior. Although, to be clear, I don't think that we will try to find a middle ground between the U.S. and China. Uh, we know to which camp we belong, but we will not like this camp to become a block. So the French, as you would expect, um, share many interests with the United States in the Indo-Pacific. Our ships actually operate sometimes together. In addition to the fact that they exercise together. uh, But we don't want to be seen by Beijing and other countries in the region as being uh, blindly following Washington. So we will have to find some kind of balance between the need to clearly uh, uh, contain China's behavior, not contain China, but contain China's behavior in the region, uh, without blindly following the uh, United States. And we will try to persuade our European uh, friends and allies, such as uh, Germany or the Netherlands, which already acknowledge the need for Europe to be more present in the region, uh, notably for the defen- defense of common uh, uh, common goods uh, to, to be more present in the region. My overall conclusion, however, is that uh, it remains to be seen whether the strategic benefits of the Arcus deal uh, in Asia will outweigh its potential costs for transatlantic relations and for US relations with uh, other Asian, its Asian partners, because the Arcus deal was far from be uh, welcomed everywhere in Asia. So a big question mark here. And I would like to leave you with this uh, big question mark. Thank you very much.